The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine, which you probably figured out by now. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just your favorite source of online commentary, but also long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly, and it runs at around 130 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 50,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive online. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash digjacobin, all in lowercase. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. It was just the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and so also, of course, the anniversary of the War on Terror that Bush declared soon thereafter. A war that was continued by his Democratic successor, Obama, a technocrat who tried to remake the War on Terror into something more sensible and sustainable. A candidate upon whom many had mistakenly projected their anti-war hopes. And then, the war was commandeered by Donald Trump, who walked onto the stage at the perfect moment to seize the raw and paranoiac civilizational nationalism that had always powered the war on terror as it became unhinged from its institutional bearings and noble pretexts. Quagmired disaster nurtured a nativist, nationalist, militarist, fortressed America reaction. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. That was Donald Trump in December of 2015. That was how this travel ban started. Now, June of 2018, the Supreme Court has had the final word, and they say those words do not matter as the policy in its current form is squarely within the president's power. In the 20th century, the United States has defeated fascism, Nazism, and communism. Now a different threat challenges our world, radical Islamic terrorism. This is a three-part series on the War on Terror with journalist Spencer Ackerman, the author of Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. The forever wars unleashed murderous violence and wrecked countries across the world, very much including the United States. This is the third and final installment, Episode 3, Decadence, Trump, and Biden. Before we get started, If you like what we do here at The Dig, if you depend upon what we do here at The Dig, please do take a quick moment to support us at patreon.com slash The Dig. If you're listening right now, I can picture it. You've always been meaning to support us, but you never get around to doing so. Now is a great time to do it. Please just hit pause for a second. Navigate your web browser to patreon.com slash The Dig and make a contribution. Even $5 a month 
goes a very, very long way. It adds up. $10 a month or more, we will send you a book or books, a mug, a tote bag. But we do not pay well any episodes at all. And so the main thing we do to raise money is just to appeal to you and let you know that the only reason this podcast can exist is because those of you listeners who can afford to support us do so at patreon.com. We will also be starting a weekly newsletter this week posted on our website and emailed to patrons. So if you want to get that newsletter, which will be very, very good, I promise, emailed to you, please contribute now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Spencer Ackerman, the author of Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. A Pulitzer Prize and National Magazine Award-winning reporter, Spencer currently writes the Forever Wars newsletter on Substack, which I will link to in the show notes. The right really passionately hated Obama's preference for the euphemism violent extremism. For Obama, as with Bush, at least in Bush's first term, it was for obvious reasons strategically unwise to impugn every Muslim on earth when you're trying to, you know, maintain a global empire. But the right was obsessed with Islam being named. What what role did that right wing obsession with naming Islam, something that, again, emerged during the Bush administration, come to play in conservative opposition to Obama? I found this something that a lot of people in journalism either like don't just don't take seriously or like view as a kind of curiosity, like, you know, these would be magic words. And I think that's an entirely wrong way of viewing this. The point of saying that the enemy is radical Islam is saying that's what terrorism is. That's who produces terrorism. People like me are counterterrorists. The whole liberal critique of the right-wing obsession on naming Islam thinks that the right-wing obsession with Obama naming Islam is silly. And it's not yes, silly. And it's part of highly wrong. This is profound. <laughs> this is really part of the war on terror at its root. This is a reason why the name the war on terror is this social compromise that breaks down because like you and I and the listeners of this show recognize that it is a patriotic farce concealing brutality, exploitation, and expropriation and repression and poses a democratic threat, a threat to democracy, as well as a threat to human beings. The right sees this as a craven capitulation to political correctness that it's afraid to say that Islam is terrorism. It's afraid to say that the terrorism we give a shit about is Muslim terrorism. Like, this is how you get literal, like, defenders of the IRA, like Peter King, a Long Island Republican who, like, if you're not a New Yorker, you have to understand that, like, shitloads of us are like Peter King, Rudy Giuliani, and Donald fucking Trump. And, like, Peter King is not being a hypocrite once you understand American exceptionalism. He's not being a hypocrite once you understand nativism. He's making a point. Ultimately, we recognize it's an entirely relativist and arbitrary point, but he's making a point that only certain kinds of terrorism matter. 
only certain kinds of terrorism are the sorts of terrorism that the United States ought to expend energy and utilize the intimidating, carceral, and lethal powers of the state against. And that's what's behind the phrase radical Islamic terror and why nativist sections of the right, particularly during this period, view it as a kind of shibboleth. Like you have to express yourself in these terms. And oh my God, as soon as Bush is out of office and the right, and in particular, the Republican Party that seeks the 2012 presidential nomination is looking for like, are we going to oppose withdrawal from Iraq? Do we really want to be like committed to that? And like, instead, you can substitute that with these more civilizational fears. And it's a civilizational fear that both draws as brightly as possible the civilizational lines drawn by the war on terror, often in euphemism since its inception, and also begins to reinscribe those lines as we see as the war on terror degenerates over time, increasingly drawing those lines domestically and creating civilizational divides internal to the U.S., whether it's immigrants who pose a threat or often liberals through their complicity or treason, as it was Ann Coulter's book like a decade ago, right? Yes, it was literally called treason. treason. That that pose a threat. And so it's not just attacking Islam, it's attacking Islam and, and liberals at the same time, the sort of the same sort of right-wing politics that animated Cold War politics that contended that liber- the very liberal imperialists who were managing the U.S. empire at its height on behalf of capital were in fact communist agents due to their failure to engage in a cataclysmic final battle with the USSR or Red China or whatever. Have you ever read Dean Acheson's memoir, President? No. I think it is a book everyone should read. Dean Acheson is one of the absolute architects of the Cold War. He is eventually Secretary of State under Truman. And President the Creation is a Vietnam era, like right before the total collapse of, of, of Vietnam and his generation of Cold War liberal, recounting of the importance of the Cold War and like how exciting it was to be like one of the men of history who constructed it, who took on this crucial civilizational task that represents America's newfound destiny and responsibility overseas. And among the things that when I started writing this book, I wanted to read Atchison for is how he describes the Cold War politics that people like Richard Nixon, while Atchison is Secretary of State, start playing against him. You see from the very beginning, present at the creation of Cold War liberalism, is this ability to entirely disassociate the Cold War you are creating with the politics it engenders. Atchison refers to this rising and increasingly like virulent homegrown American anti-communism as the attack of the primitives. Like it could not be more condescending. Richard Nixon is not a primitive. And of course, like Atchison is like a banker or whatever he was like, it's put in these like class terms that are really disgusting and like reveal the enterprise behind anti-communism, even as he is attacking the most fervent of anti-communists. And with no ability to reflect upon the fundamental ways that the project to which Atchison has dedicated his entire life is domestically laying the groundwork for the far-right zealots 
attacking him. And the same sort of dynamics get recapitulated during the war on terror well before Trump arrives. Right around 2010, there's just this massive explosion in anti-Muslim politics in the U.S. There's the coordinated right-wing uproar over the so-called Ground Zero mosque, an uproar that we should note, you mentioned in your book, some Democrats certainly went along with. And there was another huge panic over a mosque in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, all in 2010, the year after the Tea Party's emergence, and the same year as Arizona's infamous anti-immigrant law, SB 1070. There was also this huge wave of anti-Sharia bills introduced everywhere, and these widespread conspiracy theories about Muslim Brotherhood infiltration, including into Hillary Clinton's inner circle, as some grand plot to destroy America. This is what I I call the decadent phase of the war on terror, where we really start ceasing to talk about the war on terror in its operation. The politics of the war on terror are increasingly divorced from the operations of the war on terror, which will be a crucial and I, I would believe necessary step to get where Trump gets, which is like open disdain for the operations, at least in his rhetoric. In practice, it's going to be entirely the opposite. Exhale in a way that it won't have to feel responsible for like lashing itself to the horror of the war on terror. Yeah, you write, quote, evolving the war on terror into a civilizational counter jihad was valuable to conservatives. There's a question of Obama not attacking Libya in the wake of Gaddafi's threat to like basically kill everyone in Benghazi. There's a brief moment where like Buck McKeon, dirt stupid California Republican who's the chair of the House Armed Services Committee, starts attacking him for it. Then Obama starts bombing Libya. And Buck McKeon starts attacking him for it. (laughs) Mix all of that with ISIS, which by its declarations is borderless. ISIS, which is redrawing maps. All of these people from all of these Western countries are now saying like, fuck it, and going to Syria and joining them. It has not just internet literate, but internet fluent presence to the point where it seems to fill a void that particularly like young Muslim men in the West are feeling is just missing in their lives. And I think this is a very similar thing that you'll get with like boogaloos. They seem to have a lot of commonalities and they're familiar patterns from history of adventure seeking, somewhat nihilistic young men looking to channel their impulses to violence, justifying all of this horror to themselves, particularly justifying gendered violence to themselves and seeking some kind of salvation, whether secular or spiritual, through violence that is now sanctified. Through that prism, then you, you, you start to interpret the material and historical grievances. It also like, serves as a tremendous like, socializing and inherent cohesive force. And in an environment which is now entirely prepared to view ISIS civilizationally, It is now remarkable, and I think very revealing, that like nativists and the Republican Party broadly were entirely fine with as minimal a direct commitment of, in particular, ground forces toward fighting ISIS as Obama put forward. And that like kind of calls an important bluff that like the United States is, in fact, in a durable sense amongst its elite 
whatever the political rhetoric is. The only way I can put it is kind of as crass is the war on terror becomes a toy that elites are tired of playing with. They don't throw the toy away. They don't donate it. They keep it around the room. And that's a really disgusting way to treat human beings, not only foreigners, but particularly your own young men and women. All of that is this powder keg that ISIS explodes. Al-Qaeda is very late to a game that ISIS just plays much better, which says you don't have to blow up a bridge, just like take a car and run some people over. And like Americans really cherish having open access to firearms. And now people who declare themselves essentially members of ISIS because like ISIS says, it's cool if you just call yourself that and kill people, start doing that on like the scale that in America we're already fucking used to seeing all kinds of psychopaths with assault weapons, like shoot up schools, shoot up public events, shoot up their ex-lovers, kill people in supermarkets, things like that. Add some world historic meaning to your very American massacre. Start an ISIS franchise. No fee required. No application required. Will that kind of violence, because it declares itself in sympathy or you know in membership of ISIS, will ever be seen as American, even when the behavior is identical, even when the means are identical, just because it expresses itself in different, quote unquote, civilizational terms, or perhaps more accurately, terms that white America is inclined to understand civilizationally. And this is extremely true also in France, where extraordinarily domestic, racialized class conflicts take on the form and appearance of a religious or civilizational conflict, which is convenient to various people on various sides. Now, once this happens, the refugee flows from Syria, from Libya, Depending on like how much attribution you want to give the war on terror to Bashar Assad. And not in terms of blame, but in terms of like ca- causality, it seems related. <laughs> right. The fact of the matter is, certainly it contributes to it. The Iraq war itself by 2008 prompts something like four to five million refugees. Libya is just sending people like by the boatload through the Mediterranean, on and on. Um, Yemen as well. and. Now, white Americans will interpret that refugee out migration from ISIS, fleeing ISIS, fleeing the disasters of America's war on terror. As an ISIS operation, essentially. As being ISIS, that there is no distinction. We start at this point seeing in Europe and in America, like very explicit descriptions, multiple state governors, I think something like 30 declare in 2015 that they will refuse to take any Syrian refugees on the principle that there might be someone among them sympathetic to the ISIS that they're fleeing. But like amongst the most American of patterns, one we are seeing contemporaneously at this point on the southern border is that America will never acknowledge responsibility, let alone provide material compensation and basic justice for the refugees it creates. And like you just said, at the southern border, where the long crisis in Mexico and Central America perpetrated on so many levels by 
the United States, including very directly facilitating the creation of MS-13, the refugee crisis that results from all of this is metabolized in American politics by portraying, on the right of American politics, portraying the people fleeing MS-13 as MS-13. MS-13, which, you know, you know this a lot better than I do, but my understanding is it's in fact a creation inside America. Yeah, it was founded in Los Angeles among Salvadoran refugees fleeing Reagan's dirty wars and then deported back into Central America, beginning under Bill Clinton's presidency to get rid of all these criminal aliens who brought some Central American problem to the United States. There's a really good book about this and other issues called All American Nativism. <laughs> I don't I'm not paying him to say that. <laughs> You write, quote, Trump understood something about the war on terror that they did not. He recognized that the 9-11 era's grotesque subtext, the perception of non-whites as marauders, even as conquerors from hostile civilizations, was its engine. As much as Trump shifted his positions on this or that conflict, he never wavered on that crucial insight. You also write, quote, Trump knew that Radical Islamic terror extracted the precious nativist metal from the husk of the forever war. What did Trump manage to do and why were and really are so many liberals and centrists still unable to understand it? And how do we get to that point well before Trump took office or was even an imagined future candidate for president? How do we get to the point where all that neocon pretense and liberal platitude had all been ripped away, leaving just this grotesquely violent core of the war on terror, the only thing with any political juice left? As the wars itself deteriorate, they become things that are experienced agonizingly in different ways by different classes here. The elites experience it differently than, say, like Trump's coalition does. In the context of that agony that really is fueled by American exceptionalism, the idea that the people that we are fighting are savages devoted to crushing everything we love and not just killing us, but trying to take away our precious freedom, they're certainly not losing. And the experience of fighting them goes far beyond anything that they were promised in the early days after 9-11. And the thing that starts, particularly as actual jihadist terror and violence, similarly mutates and intensifies in reaction to the war on terror in this kind of dialectical way. The only outlet for satisfaction occurs in viewing the war civilizationally and taking satisfaction against people closer to home, your neighbors, those who might become your neighbors, and those who have abetted such people becoming your neighbors and possibly allowing in more. This is how Cordoba House becomes the ground zero mosque, becomes a symbol and treated as a symbol of conquest looming over the World Trade Center. A push Alex style to just recycle bills that liberals understand is like these frivolous things, like they don't do, like there's no danger of Sharia law you know, what's the point of even doing this? Like is typically how they're received. The point is to constantly erode the civic space to be Muslim, to live freely as a Muslim in America, and to ensure not just a constant state of fear, but 
a license for law enforcement to push ever more intimately into your life. That's the point of it. That works very well. We get to a point where with the rise of ISIS, nothing else seems to be working very well. And because the war on terror is fought in shadow extremely technologically, and finally already waged by such a small proportion of the population, I think it's something like 1.5% of Americans have like anything to do with the military, except in like very indirect ways. All of us have something to do with the military when you think about it. But most of us experience the war on terror, and I think this is a somewhat underappreciated phenomenon, as a media event. We turn it off when we feel dissatisfied. Very often, we don't feel like the writers stuck the landing for this season, and we let it drift away until we have to come back to it and remember that, like, you know, law and order, there are just so many fucking episodes of this. And then it's like, oh, shit, Afghanistan's season finale is on. Everyone tune back in and have strong opinions about it. I hate when journalists do this. Oh, my God, we're not doing this anymore. And all of these people, oh, my God, are they falling from the sky? The kind of horrified scandalized in ahistoric reactions. If people react that way, it's because we failed. It's because we concealed the truth. It's because we did not devote the necessary rigor to determining what were the lies told by powerful people in and out of uniform to the American people. And that's what happened here. You know, how many news outlets called what the CIA did to people torture? Yet the New York Times called it enhanced interrogation for quite a number of years. News outlets still didn't press various administrations to compile and release a basic tally of the dead. This is something that like, I really think is an extraordinary, profound injustice of the war on terror lurking in plain sight, which is that we don't know who died. It's an incredibly disputed tally. And we don't know their names. The war on terror unpersoned people at industrial scale. We have to think about it like that. Otherwise, we're defaming them again. And this ultimately is a thing that once understood civilizationally, once understood is already here, could be your neighbors. You know, what will they do next? What will they take away from you? How will you be replaced? That's always at the heart of the Sharia panic. It's what they talk about when they talk about the Sharia law replacing the Constitution. This is a beta test of what we will see in Charlottesville. This comes from exactly the same impulse. That's the reason why the language echoes itself so perfectly. That is what Trump is harnessing. And in doing so, he recognizes that it would feel extremely good if the right no longer felt it had to defend these stupid wars, because all you need is the promise to redress this with exceptional brutality. The brutality that all of these elites have run from, this is the reason why the most brutal personages to emerge from the war on terror, Michael Flynn, Eric Prince, John Kelly, Gina Haspel, rush to embrace Trump. All of these key figures in the Trump universe emerge from the war on terror, and a number of them are identified by Trump skeptics 
or critics from the center or center left as the adults in the room, the people who hopefully will keep this madman in check. What role did the war on terror play in making the worldview and careers of people like Kelly and Flynn? Flynn is particularly fascinating. This is something that I hadn't known before I first spoke to you about it, I think about a year ago. You write that, quote, Flynn was the ideal validator for Trump. More than nearly anyone else on earth, Flynn had waged the war on terror, and the lessons he took from it were the ones Trump was selling. And what rarely gets mentioned, what I don't recall ever reading in Russiagate coverage. Gee, I did it. I did it. Sorry. I got to call you on that. Except from the pen of Spencer Ackerman is Flynn's major overriding interest in wanting to ally with Russia. The thing that became such a scandal was because he wanted to form a, quote, anti-jihadist alliance. This is in plain sight, and it's so underappreciated. When viewed from Flynn's perspective, this makes a lot of sense. And so much of this has been obscured in a way that serves the interests of the war on terror, which is why I believe fundamentally it's being misunderstood, because so much of the war on terror needs to be misunderstood for elites to perpetuate it and not be held accountable. The misunderstanding is a a feature rather than a bug, as people say. What's at work here is Flynn, who by all accounts really transforms the tip of the spear of the war on terror, which is uh, the Joint Special Operations Command, the elite forces joined together of all of the military services, but it's extremely heavy representation among like Army Green Berets and Navy SEALs. Flynn transforms that into an intelligence gathering operation because while they are raiding so many people's houses, they realize there's a tremendous value in taking all of their records and then exploiting them and hopefully finding like connections to other people. And like this becomes how JSOC's hit squads work. And Flynn rides tremendous reputational acclaim to Afghanistan, where in something that just like doesn't happen in military intelligence, he publishes an enormous like scathing critique of the intelligence agencies for the Center for a New American Security Think Tank, which is the counterinsurgency think tank. Which is the smart, sophisticated, intellectual war on terror think tank. Exactly. This makes Flynn's reputation, I swear to God, this is so hard to remember in 2021. This made Michael Flynn into an intellectual. <laughs> like people thought this guy was fucking brilliant and like was was ready to like break the mold and restore a, a certain kind of like both tactical and like commonsensical element. He was basically also saying something that like had the virtue of, even if he didn't quite say this for what I would consider the right reasons is fundamentally true. He's just saying like, the problem here is, is that none of you understand Afghanistan. And if we don't understand Afghanistan, this whole thing makes no sense. He would be talking about like, you need to know like market prices in Jalalabad to understand the potential strength of the Taliban. It's like, again, like, not super wrong, but also this is going to take you on like crazy nation building exercises that won't be resolved. All you will be doing is just spending lots of money to continue to misunderstand things under the guise of understanding things. Flynn parlays that after the Afghanistan surge ends, Petraeus keeps him on after McChrystal is fired, or as McChrystal will probably hastily point out, resigns. After the Rolling Stone incident. After the late Michael Hastings 
immortal Rolling Stone. He becomes head of a backwater intelligence agency. And like very quickly, Jim Clapper, the very powerful director of national intelligence under Obama, realizes that that this is an enormous error, that this guy is crackers and not particularly well hinged on reality. Flynn gets fired. It's like a really epic disgrace. And everyone who knows Flynn far more intimately than I ever will says that he considers this a really low moment in his life that demanded satisfaction. Donald Trump is his mechanism for a restoration to glory. Very quickly after the firing, Flynn links up with the Iran-Contra figure, Michael Ledeen, writes a book that's basically like, the problem here is radical Islam, and people like Obama won't let me say that. He writes an op-ed for the New York Post that ensures his place in like conservative media stardom. He retcons his firing to be Obama censoring him over his outspoken, steadfast, stalwart confrontation of radical Islamic terror. So like this is an enormously useful critique to the nativist right. And is that intention with his kind of counterinsurgency, Petraeus-ish critique of the war on terror when he was actually still in command? So here's the thing. The people who are around Flynn, who I've been able to talk to, insist he was not like that. I am just not convinced it's true. The first time that I was able to talk to Flynn was around 2013, 14. And the vibe was there. Like, I didn't recognize it at the time, but like, no one changes that suddenly, even after a disastrous humiliation. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash The Dig. The Dig is produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine. These are tough times for publishing, but Jacobin is sticking at it, publishing over 200 original essays every month online and producing the best socialist print magazine in the English language. Jacobin's work is just so vital in creating socialist arguments that can penetrate into the mainstream and, like Marx says, change, not just interpret, the world. But this work is dependent on your support. If you're able, please consider going to jacobinmag.com slash donate and making a tax-deductible donation today. Regular monthly donations help Jacobin plan even better. That's jacobinmag.com slash donate. You'll keep Jacobin going in tough times, and Jacobin will be there for you for the struggles to come. You write, quote, Throughout his presidency, Trump was often misperceived as being an opponent of the war on terror. Fifteen years of brutality as background noise made it easy for many to misinterpret Trump's position on the war on terror. Journalists listened to his invective against it and called him anti-war, as if he had not been promising to bomb the shit out of millions of people. What should we make of Trump's war on terror, politics, and his whole related but sort of distinct anti-deep state theatrics. And then why was it that not only were so many supporters keen on 
misreading Trump, but maybe even more so, so many detractors keen on misreading him on the war on terror. Trump at this point is serving up a purely civilizational explanation that will allow his supporters, because it provides the needed brutality and the needed civilizational explanation, provide his supporters the flexibility and himself the flexibility necessary to just not care if, for instance, he declares the war in Syria over and everyone coming home by Christmas, and then just not do that. Because like the thing is, Trump and through Trump, this cohort doesn't need to be consistent on anything but providing the civilizational critique, the opportunity for vengeance as you feel like it. And the sense, the surety that because the terrorism that concerns him is radical Islamic terrorism, no other terrorism will. All of that together forms the Trump faction's perspective on the war on terror and provides the political alignment ad hoc agenda, provided the brutality is there as it always will be. The other faction is the former lions of the war on terror, the adults in the room who are there or are understood to be there to protect the country from Trump. What they are doing most often is protecting the war on terror from where Trump might ultimately jettison it. Most often they win. And while the fight continues, it gets exceptionally ugly. Not only are they looking for like reprisal against never Trumpers, they view people like H.R. McMaster, an absolute hero of counterinsurgency, who from the moment he walks into the Trump administration is dedicated to showing his ass in the most spectacular possible senses. He lies for Trump. He gets humiliated by Trump. Breitbart launches a straight out anti-Semitic campaign to call him the puppet of George Soros based on an entirely superficial connection. Mattis stands behind Trump and applauds at the Pentagon as Trump signs the Muslim ban. Mattis, who is considered the most, along with Petraeus, cerebral officer of his generation. Like these are people whose reputations are what Colin Powell's was to George W. Bush. And just like then, look who wins. In fairness, Mattis, McMaster, the much humiliated Rex Tillerson, and the other adults win more than Powell does by far. But the humiliation, the disdain, and the slime of complicity masquerading as resistance is what is most directly similar to Powell's experience. Some of their winning is not winning good stuff, like Gina Haspel, you write, being one of the strongest advocates of Trump killing Soleimani, or the kind of generals being united in favor of successfully pushing Trump to escalate in Afghanistan rather than pull out. That's right. So this becomes the explicit part of the political struggle inside Trump's war on terror, particularly when MAGA sees itself frustrated by the adults in the room. It happens when some of those adults' other friends are people like Bob Mueller, who is investigating Trump and his cottery for a pretty fucking astounding 
counterintelligence case, like an unbelievable counterintelligence vulnerability. I don't know how much we want to talk about Russiagate. I think this is an incredibly misunderstood episode that you have to understand as pretty much a knockaround guys style gangster movie. Of course, Russia did this because if you had the chance for satisfaction against the United States of America and you were a 1980s era KGB officer, oh my God, like the opportunity to just give the United States a little push into like seriously destabilizing territory. Like if anyone's ever read an incredible pair of books published as the secrets of the KGB from what's known as the Matrokin Archive by a defector named Vasily Matrokin. It's a secret history from the Russian perspective of the Cold War. It's what the Soviet deep state used to see the world. Trump starts interpreting the Justice Department investigations of him and his allies for their solicitation of Russian interference in the election as everything he always takes it as. When he finds himself in, in legal trouble, he comes up with a counter narrative in which corrupt cops on behalf of the traitors to the United States, a witch hunt, are coming not to stop me. They're coming to take away your political power. And this begins an era in which you can openly say the words deep state, except it's the right saying, it, which shouldn't you know necessarily be so surprising. But like for my particular experience, it's a kind of surreal thing. Ultimately, this has very deep roots, as I write in the book. Really, it goes back to Atchison in this case. It has very deep anti-communist roots. It also has a direct antecedent in how the neocons in the Bush White House warred with the CIA and the senior uniform military about the scope and the particulars of the Iraq invasion. This time, this generation of right-winger is looking to take the whole thing out because it's a constraint on its power. A long story short, particularly given the ways in which Trump expands, even by inertia, NSA surveillance and FBI surveillance on everyone who isn't him and his buddies. We really see what's at work here, particularly when he purges the intelligence agencies in late 2019 and puts in Rick Grinnell and John Ratcliffe, like total loyalists at the top of ODNI, which is already, as I write in the book, a total Chekhov's gun waiting to go off. It is the nominal head of the intelligence agencies responsible to none of those agencies, only to the president that appoints it. It's an arrangement in the intelligence agencies that's just like waiting for someone to fully abuse it. Trump is not opposed to a deep state. Trump is trying to construct one. This is going to be his bequest as he drilled people down into these agencies, as obviously every administration really does. But here, the point is to be either personally loyal or loyal to a movement. And this is going to have really profound consequences the longer the war on terror persists and securitized responses to domestic political disputes have an opportunity in the war on terror and the increasing acceleration of lickspittles that will operate it, and not just from the right. Yeah, once again the permanent government established to fight the Cold War and then the war on terror create the conditions that make new political subjectivities that are hostile to that same permanent government, i.e. the deep state, not because they oppose the Cold War and then the war on terror, but because they want 
the permanent government or deep state on their side. They Yeah, they want one that will be on their side and with its libidinal engine fully and performatively exhibitionistly <laughs> exposed. And with all of this having long been normalized, all of the lies surrounding it having long been normalized, all of the justifications for it having long been normalized, all of the violations of law long been normalized, all of that ready to see what the summer of 2020 was as just an appetizer. This is a really dangerous moment. This is an anti-democratic opportunity at tremendous scale. And I think that really ought to underscore the urgency of destroying this thing root and branch. Specifically, what you're referring to is National Guard troops being deployed against protesters in 2020 DHS deploying drones nationwide against protesters. So all of this creep of technology from wars abroad to the border, then right into the heart of American cities where people are rising up against police violence and met not only with the material infrastructure of the war on terror in the form of drones and DHS federal agents, but also the political and cultural infrastructure of the war on terror in terms of this troop veneration that had been fostered, this idea, you know, most grotesquely put forward perhaps by none other than than John Kelly, that troops are a superior social caste within the United States, bleeding into this newfound cop veneration, and then ultimately the veneration of vigilantes like Kyle Rittenhouse. And remember, first off, the police, as anyone who was out in those protests saw firsthand, understood everything Trump was saying and doing as an encouragement for a weeks-long riot that various police departments unleashed, armed very directly, very literally with the weapons of the war on terror. The war on terror created new markets, state-created markets, to ensure tools that had previously been national-level intelligence assets, as well as more direct tactical hardware to police departments around the country. This precedes the war on terror, but all of that intensifies with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. The Department of Homeland Security's grants for this vastly exceed Pentagon programs like 1099 that give hardware to local police departments. So the war on terror really accelerates the militarization of American policing. And of the border, because the incorporation of immigration enforcement into the new DHS just metastasizes the budget for immigration enforcement. And one of the first things that the head of the Border Patrol says in, I believe, the first National Border Patrol strategy issued after 9-11 is, our mission is now to stop terrorists. And that means that we need to secure the border because essentially every unauthorized immigrant until proven otherwise is potentially a terrorist. Now Trump has licensed all of this for domestic use. You know, Trump was using essentially like posses created by Chad Wolf at the Department of Homeland Security and Bill Barr at the Department of Justice that were using like straight out very familiar war on terror tactics, like stuffing people into unmarked vans in Portland and driving them to detention, describing protesters 
letting off fireworks as IEDs that allowed them to shoot protesters in the head with rubberized bullets. The more you allow the war on terror to persist, this is just a harbinger. This is something you can really see coming because it already manifested. You mentioned Eric Prince as one of the characters from the early phase of the war on terror who also become influential figures within Trump world. And just how big and important did private contractors become during the war on terror? And did the war on terror represent such a major quantitative shift in our military industrial complex's role in war making and politics that it also marked a qualitative shift? In other words, Obviously, Dwight Eisenhower, after helping to build up the military industrial complex, warned the American people about it on his way out the door. So it's been with us for quite a while. But did the war on terror create an even more monstrous military industrial complex than that which we had lived under before? Without a doubt, because now it's also a surveillance industrial complex, like corporate and government surveillance of data that you did not very often realize was commodified the moment you created it, none of it under your control or to your material benefit. They're just symbiotic now. That's what our economy is. It's a like opportunistic fusion of government and corporate surveillance. Like That's just what the economy is. Eric Prince is futzing around with law enforcement tactical range that he considers a training center in Moyoc, North Carolina, and realizes this guy's also a former Navy SEAL. What an opportunity the war on terror presents. This guy is heir to inherited wealth and Republican Party influence in Michigan. Obviously, the story he likes to tell is like the plucky up-and-comer Blackwater. <laughs> you see, he came up with the idea for Blackwater in his garage. You know, something like that. And obviously, you shouldn't listen to me on this, read Jeremy Scahill's book. But like, this was something that one prints very quickly a contract known as the Worldwide Protective Services contract that the State Department issued, which was like every year of it is the better part of like a billion dollars. Like this is an insanely lucrative contract. And they start protecting US diplomats in Iraq and Afghanistan and do insane shit. Like they steal so many guns and sign their names on the sign out form, Eric Cartman. Like they do stuff like that. So much coke. So much steroids, a lot of naked jockeying around on drug binges in the green zone. A lot of this is operatic. Like there was a circumstance in which as journalists everywhere who covered this thing privately celebrated, one of their drug dealers was deposed and just described all of this drug use while they were like adding a zero to their paychecks from when they were in the military. And then like in the, the morning would get into armored Chevy Suburbans, tricked out with shitloads of guns, and ferry diplomats either through Baghdad or on the highway of death between central Baghdad and the airport. So basically the green zone in the airport. And he just continues to just parlay this increasingly as the perfect capitalist. As his notoriety grows in the United States, because Blackwater commits one of the signature atrocities of the war on terror, they murder people simply for not being able to quickly get out of a crowded traffic circle in Baghdad. He just decides like, oh, well, you know who I can service? Crown Prince of the United Arab Emirates. 
and you know who will probably need protection as they construct the One Belt, One Road initiative, is the Chinese government. Blackwater, when it serves its purposes, will wrap itself in the flag. They always resisted being called mercenaries, despite that being what they were. There is an entire mercenaries lobby in Washington called the International Peace Operations Association. And like mercenaries are like amongst the oldest things that human beings are and do. Maybe the second oldest profession. What is certainly distinct about it is there is now a permanent, massive amount of money redistributed from you and me toward this and also like incurred through the wars themselves. But this is really more a permanent infrastructure, tremendous borrowing in order to finance it. All of this, a crusade to reassert America's omnipotent might. If it wasn't so horrifically bloody, you would see it as comical the way it drains away the sources of American post-Cold War strength. Today, we see the blob and the mainstream media resurrecting the neocon pretext for the war on terror, the humanitarian pretext to go after Biden over his withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. We then have nationalist nativists agreeing with the mainstream media's basic framing of the withdrawal as a debacle or disaster to pivot to an even more reactionary argument that we owe Afghans nothing or that wokeness lost the war or that Afghan refugees now pose a threat to American security and society. That's right. No different, like with ISIS, no different than the Taliban they're fleeing. You write, quote, for those millions of Americans who demanded vengeance for 9-11 and then for the United States's compounded misfortunes in seeking it, the forever war brought only the pain and humiliation of attaining neither peace nor victory. Reading those lines in the same days that I was reading U.S. media coverage of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, it made me think, is it fair to say that the right does not by any means hold a monopoly on having their politics being motivated so powerfully by humiliation? I think that's entirely correct. And honestly, I really do feel this. So like I say this as someone who can identify somewhat with it. There really is something about observing a war up close that it's not correct to say like you take ownership of it because that would imply that people treat it more responsibly than they do. But they've seen it and on a certain level it has shaped them and that shaping can occur in very subtle ways that I recognize thanks to therapy. And so much of the way we in the media have described the war on terror maps perfectly with how the political elite and the security establishment wants the war on terror to be understood. Even when you have like factual reporting about how badly the war is going, the framing of it is very typically in matters that the Pentagon would not particularly see as worth challenging or, or challenging at all. There has been excellent journalism throughout the war on terror. The Afghanistan papers from just a few years ago. I got, when I was in the Pentagon press corps for Wired, the chance to see Craig Whitlock in action. And like, there really was a difference between a lot of people in the Pentagon press corps and Whitlock. By and large, these were people who like constantly sneered at Michael Hastings. Hastings, who was a Baghdad bureau chief, 
whose fiance was killed in Iraq. George Packer wrote a heartless review of his book, particularly given that Packer supported the war and Michael suffered a consequence of it. Certainly, his fiance was the one who truly suffered. The frameworks adopted by the press throughout the war on terror very typically were disinterested in finding the human beings who endured the war on terror or the stories of those who didn't. It very often described Muslims in the most dehumanizing possible ways, refugees as well. Just the very fact of like calling people detainees for such a profoundly long period of time. But in fact, they are prisoners. There's so much euphemism that just like colonized, for lack of a better term, the way that most of us in the press thought of and presented the war on terror. And none of it had any historical context at all. Very little of it was willing to engage in any kind of material critique of what this thing was, who was benefiting from it, and what that meant, what it was doing to our democracy. Very often, the politics of the war on terror, because in some theoretical sense, they are separable concepts, was treated in the press and by intellectuals as some kind of like very unfortunate adjunct that needed to be tamped down. But the war itself didn't, in some fundamental way, have any relationship with it. And that division, which is a fundamentally interested division, is crucial for the bien-pensant reaction to Trump amongst particularly the upper middle class, whether they're liberal or never Trumper. That refusal to recognize that this doesn't come from nowhere, that this is a lot of very old currents in American history that in particular get an opportunity to merge and tools to use because of the war on terror and how much brutality and how much deception has already been baked into contemporary American political life because of the war on terror. You write of the 2020 primary, quote, the entire democratic field, even Biden himself, now vowed to end endless wars. The ease with which Biden and the others took up the slogan, that being endless wars, spoke to how unclear its meaning had become. It represented a triumph of Obama's legacy, making the war on terror sustainable through making it sufficiently inconspicuous to split the difference with abolition. I don't know if you were surprised about Biden actually ending the war in Afghanistan, but I was. But I also know that that does not add up to ending the war on terror. Are we any closer, though, to ending it? Or are we just heading to the next phase of Obama's sustainable war, something that the drone strike killing of a family of U.S. allies, purportedly a preemptive strike against ISIS, might suggest? How can we both appreciate Biden ending the Afghanistan war and also be wary of what sort of wars will continue? It matters that Biden fought for the Afghanistan withdrawal and stuck with it. I happen not to be surprised because I remembered in 2009, he fights this very lonely battle against escalation in Afghanistan. It's hard to remember in 2009 and 2010, it was an article of faith amongst like even liberal journalists 
to just be like, Joe Biden might be the wrongest man in American foreign policy at a moment when he was, in truth, the rightest on this narrow question. Obviously, he wasn't abolitionist, but in terms of the battle lines as they were drawn in the Obama administration on the Afghanistan surge, Biden was right and they were wrong. Now, what Biden was really after was still in the terms of the war on terror, which is also why the other half of this post-withdrawal is important to appreciate, because what Biden was arguing for at the time was drone strikes, counterterrorism raids, and particularly focused in Pakistan, where there is just no legal authorization to you know, conduct these things. That's Biden, too. That's how Biden conceives of the alternative to ground wars that are hopeless and forever like Afghanistan. And we heard that at the same time as he defended quite, I thought, often eloquently his decision to withdraw. But what he also did, which we really have to understand as a matter of urgency, is that first he panders to nativism by blaming the Afghans for the Afghanistan war that America inflicted on. They just didn't want to fight. An order of magnitude more Afghan soldiers and police died in the Afghanistan war than American service members did. Biden obviously is doing this because it's an American exceptionalist alibi. It's a variant of blaming the Iraqis for the horror of the the Iraq war. It's simultaneously important to remember that Biden is reserving the right to surveil and bomb Afghanistan at will, which of course will you know, mean the Afghan people will continue to suffer. And then finally, Biden spends the first months of his presidency on Afghanistan studying and then deciding that the right course of action is to use what American leverage remains to broker a Taliban, Ashraf Ghani government peace accord even while it's a combatant here. The United States simply refuses to believe that that matters diplomatically when it's the central fucking fact of the Afghanistan war. It's a neutral arbiter. What do you mean? Just an impartial guy. (laughs) And what the Biden people say when you ask them about getting, in particular, vulnerable people out early is that they couldn't do that because it would undermine the Ashraf Ghani government that America was trying to work through. That, once again, was America prioritizing its political fictions over the lives of thousands, if not millions of people. How many could have been saved if there was an airlift of the sort that we saw of the last two plus weeks in August? Or if there was a negotiated surrender to the Taliban. It could never have happened, but... The point I want to make here also um, is one that kind of joins our critiques in in a way that was really stomach churning to observe for all of the belated ad hoc and very often private network tapped to get out Afghans who served Western interests in some way. That was treated as a way of avoiding that America has any obligation to every Afghan, that America made people refugees, that America, not just for the 20 years of the war it fought directly, but going back to the 1980s, played not exclusively, but directly major roles for two generations of destabilizing Afghanistan, immiserating people, 
killing people, ensuring ultimately that elements like the Taliban had the opportunity to come to power and then declaiming responsibility for all of it. It was never and will never, I think, unless people really force their politicians to make it part of an agenda, will never be reparations that America owes the Afghan people. And when Biden talks about taking the new euphemism now is over the horizon counterterrorism capabilities, that's drone strikes. Much like Obama tried, Biden, and you can hear this from Jen Psaki's press conferences, you can hear it from John Kirby at the Pentagon, you can hear it from Ned Price at the State Department, and then you can hear it from the principals themselves, is talking about reserving the right to, like his three predecessors, take counterterrorism action, lethal force, anywhere in the world that they see a threat metastasize that they can link to, in some form, the descendant of ISIS, you know, whatever version of the ever mutating enemy the war on terror generates at this particular moment. And that is, once again, the moment where you risk seeing Isildur deciding to put the one ring on his finger when he has a moment to throw it in the fire. That's sort of where I think we kind of are. There, there, are, there will be some hinge points going forward. At some point, I was surprised this didn't happen this year. Um, Biden will issue a counterterrorism strategy. I, I have no idea when. I was very surprised he didn't do it this year. But it's been explained to me that like that's not going to happen in 2021. Lastly, did the political culture of the war on terror, has it shaped Americans' approach to the pandemic and to the mass death that COVID has caused, or more particularly, the government response to COVID has caused. Did did the war on terror change the way we think about death? Did it preclude us from fighting a war on COVID or climate change because of the way it dictated how we think about enemies and threats? Finishing your book, I was thinking about how the U.S. right has always had this racist thing to say about Arabs, which is that Arabs don't value human life. December 9th of last year, you write, quote, was the first day, but not the last, to exceed the 9-11 death toll. So which society is the death cult now? The orientation of the way we think about threats to our security has nothing to do with the security of human beings. This is what is meant by national security. The United States goes to war for imperial interest, which is also going to be the interest of capital. It generates an enormous, enormous market that it then exploits for death. And it prevents us from viewing in any more than a superficial level methods to alleviate what actually like threatens human beings. There were all of these moments throughout the early Obama years when like Republicans would freak out when Democrats on the armed services or intelligence committees would write into NDAAs the need to study like the impact of climate change and view it as a national security threat. Now, really what this was, was just like a very minimal concession to reality about the vulnerability of the United States to what we're seeing capitalism having produced. And to more pragmatically manage its implications for U.S. global empire. Right. You know, this is when the Navy 
starts to like try and go green and basically like see if it can run on biomass. Long story short, it doesn't and then gives up. COVID really shows the reaction when like the threat is real, but there's no one to kill. And this is really what worries me that the war on terror will shed the skin of the war on terror and just like kind of be the essence of it moving next. There was a need on some level to concoct an enemy that could be physically confronted. And like throughout the war on terror, it was your Asian American neighbors who have been treated to acts of vigilante violence that really uncomfortably resonate in their familiarity with the civilizational and community responses given to American Muslims after 9-11. And this, along with the way that particularly liberal elites have so rapidly enlisted in a new Cold War against China for like reasons that are very reminiscent of their reasons for enlisting in the war on terror after 9-11. This is a crusade to make sure that freedom and our way of life are not to be extinguished from the world, that America can still do great things, that American power is still relevant and on and on, except this one is like really just nakedly imperial however much the euphemism is great power competition. But what in the world else is it? Then there are kind of specific ways in which treatment of people as casually, as dismissively, and as parsimoniously as you could possibly throttle government function. And like the idea that the state has any kind of interventionist responsibility in the lives of so many people is reminiscent as well of the way the occupation governments in Iraq and Afghanistan that the Americans set up treated people there casually. But at the same time, in fairness, like it's not unusual from an American perspective either. So I don't want to like overdraw that observation. Well, Spencer Ackerman, thank you very much. Dan, thank you so much for having me. You know how much I loved and benefited from uh, reading all American nativism. So this has been a real pleasure. This was part three of The Dig's three-part series on the War on Terror with Spencer Ackerman. Spencer Ackerman is the author of Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. He is also the author of The Forever Wars Substack, which I'll link to in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, but unheroic though bourgeois society is, it nevertheless needed heroism, sacrifice, terror, civil war, and national wars to bring it into being. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, and this week also by the great Jesse Brenneman. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. The Dig is recorded at WBRU in Providence. Our communications coordinator is Tamuz Frankel. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also consider leaving us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you just telling other people about the show, why you listen to it, why they should listen to it, why you like it, why they'll like it, etc. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 